the scripture for today is James chapter 3, beginning in verse 13 through 18. And the title to the message is Wisdom from Above. Verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done and the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. When we were last together, we began to examine this word wisdom and we saw how easily it is for us to get caught up in believing in and taking part in the wisdom of the world. And without even realizing that we're doing it, we not only subscribe to the world's beliefs and philosophies and ways of life, we actually promote it. We promote all of those difficulties that the Lord brings to us. And in particular, we find that we have joined with the world in its insistence that the only path to achieve greater wisdom comes through institutions of higher learning, not accepting or trusting people unless they have those special credentials and have letter designations after their names, such as CPA, MD, PhD, or they perhaps have a title of vice president. I can recall leading business meetings where we would have a seminar speaker and in their bio, you would have to read out all of those titles after their names. And everyone sitting out there in the audience would accept this person as being an expert because of all of those titles. Now, yes, we do need experts. We want our experts to truly be experts, especially in fields such as medical field. We want our doctor to be an expert. But I do fear that we have learn to be too trusting. A system that we have bought into uh, with all of its ideas, that's really not as trustworthy as we often give it credit. It doesn't require much close examination of the outcome of the wisdom of the world to be able to see that its ways really do not work out well all of the time. That the world's systems are often in disarray and that is so evident in today's society the world system is in disarray and it collapses under the weight of its own delusions, especially so in our political and our government ideologies. And it's also true in businesses and financial systems and in untold other ventures that are built on these ideas and philosophies that center attention around power and profit. But then they leave the average working person hurting and wanting. And he says so here in verse 16. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. The words of this verse, let me read them again. For where you have envy 
and selfish ambition. And isn't that so prominent in everything that we watch on television in our news reports? For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Those words are so obviously true. As the wisdom of the world promotes and produces envy and selfish ambition, it also produces disorder and every evil practice, just as the Lord has said here. And its wisdom seems always ultimately to fail. And folks, for all these things, the envy and the selfish ambition and the disorder and disarray to be taking place in those business offices and in those political circles, they must first be taking place within the hearts of men and women on a very individual and personal basis. Such simple desires and behaviors, they've been common among us men since Adam first sinned. But over these past several decades, and perhaps it was before my lifetime, but certainly in these past recent decades of my lifetime here in America, these sinful behaviors have become commonplace for our women folk. Always been in the hearts of men, but now they're becoming common in the hearts of our women folk, taking them away from God's ordained roles of motherhood and marriage and placing them instead in positions of importance in so many of our workplaces and in our political roles. And yes, yes, women are very capable of carrying out those business and political responsibilities, sometimes better than the men. There's always a price to be paid for those successes. There's always a price to be paid, and that price can clearly be seen in all the many hurting and broken home lives and family lives. Because now, where you only had an absentee father, now you have an absentee father and an absentee mother in so many families. And similar hurting and similar struggles can be seen in racial divides that have become so prominent in today's culture. Our black brothers and sisters crying out for their recognition within our society. So important to them that they be recognized. And it's bringing on so much of this envy, selfish ambition, disorder, and evil practice. And yes, many of the desires and hopes of women and the various ethnic groups, they're all valid. But again, there's always a price to be paid. And unfortunately, these words of warning include all of them. They're the driving force behind so much of what's taking place in the breakdown of our society today. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. The Lord is so wise, isn't he? Just a simple sentence and he can describe the driving force behind so much of the trouble that we're experiencing. And may I say again, the words of this verse are so, so very true. The wisdom of the world promotes all of these problems of envy and selfish ambition and disorder, and it will ultimately fail. I do believe that we're seeing so much of that take place in our society today. But why would that be so? Why is failure always the ultimate end? Why does the world's systems fail? Why will they always fail? Whether they be personal or individual or business or political, 
they will always fail. And it's because of one thing. Our wisdom, the wisdom that he speaks about here, is limited. And it's limited to only the self-centered, imperfect abilities of mankind. And consequently, the world can see no further than itself and the immediate moment in front of us. And yes, people and businesses do try to make long-term plans and projections for all that they're going to do. And as I spent most of my life in business, we made business projections. They would come close sometimes, but most of the time only narrowly close. Only the all-knowing eternal mind of God can know all of the dynamics that are taking place beneath the surface in each person's mind, each person's plans and their intents. Because as we know, each person is very self-oriented. While we work as a, together as a society, it's just a group of individuals all exercising their own plans and intents. It's only the omniscient mind of God that knows all of those future events that are going to take place and are going to impact the decisions that we made. Also, we must never forget that there's an ever-present enemy there. And it's in three forms. The enemies of our soul is the world, the flesh, and the devil. And folks, we really do need to take the devil into account. Too often, our brethren within our conservative churches, we tend to write off the involvement of the devil. We say such things as, oh, well, my own sin is enough to be concerned with. And besides that, I don't want to ascribe too much credit to Satan and give him the glory. But listen, listen, to ignore an obvious enemy in time of battle is utter foolishness. Satan is real and is ever on the attack. And for us to think that if we simply ignore him, he'll not bother us, that guarantees our failure. The devil and his minions never rest in their effort to win and to keep their converts. As I was thinking through this earlier, I was recalling the history of World War II. For those that would remember the history of Europe, so many of the leaders, and especially the leader of the United Kingdom, they said, if we'll just appease Mr. Hitler, he'll not attack us. That was disastrous. That was utter foolishness. Mr. Hitler attacked them all, whether they tried to appease him or not. And that's the same thing that will take place with Satan. You and I have to understand that the devil and his minions will never rest in their efforts. And folks, one of the favorite temptations of the devil is that of immediate gain. Immediate gain. He knows our ways. He is the architect of the world's wisdom. He knows our ways and he knows that we are so easily swayed by the possibility of having it all and having it now that most of us, most of us would quickly trade away the unknown future for just a few moments of pleasure today. So the demonic wisdom of the world cries out to us to seize the day. I've heard that expression so many times, seize the day. To go ahead and to have that immediate success to have that boyfriend or that girlfriend that you always wanted to have that other job that pays so very well to have that beautiful home and to have that car that proudly declares to everyone just how successful you are 
and yes, even to have that other man's wife or that other woman's husband. Grab happiness while you can. It's a fleeting thing. That's the wisdom of the world. And too often we do all of those things. We do exactly that. We reach out and we take hold of the moment. But unfortunately, as we can clearly see taking place all around us every day, those pleasures are so short-lived. Things gained through the wisdom of the world will never last very long. They will never last very long. And these words must serve as a warning to even those of us who think ourselves to be strongly believing Christians and we think, that can't happen to me. Oh yes, it can. The divorce rate among evangelical Christians or those who claim to be evangelical Christians is just exactly the same as it is for the unbelieving world. And so we can't believe that that's not going to happen to us. That somehow we're exempt from Satan's ploys and his temptations. We can quickly fail. And the Lord gives us a warning. He says we cannot serve both that higher life, and he calls it mammon, the mammon of the world, because most everything that we desire has some form of riches involved in it, some vision for more money involved in it. He tells us we cannot serve both the mammon of this world and keep a humble heart towards Christ. It simply does not work that way. He told us in Luke 16, he said, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now here, mammon again. Mammon is envisions this higher life, this wealth, this position that we want to occupy. I note also that the exact dollar amount in these scriptures here in Matthew uh, 6 and also in Luke chapter 16, there's, there's no amount of wealth. There's no dollar amount that's uh, being described. So for most of us, a little can be a lot. can be the very same as a lot. And we can be severely tempted by it, regardless of the amount. Now, as we think through these words, we know that there is nothing especially wrong with wealth. There really isn't. There's nothing especially wrong with wealth. Some of the godliest people I know are very wealthy. And there's nothing wrong with higher education and those titles after our names or any of the lofty positions in life. The problem seems to lie instead within the controlling sensation of pride. There are three major sins the Scripture mentions. Lust of the eye, lust of the flesh, and pride of life. And they're all wrapped up in this, this sensation of pride. It goes along with this mammon and the lifestyle that that mammon projects for us in our mind. In these words, God is calling us to turn away from that wisdom of the world that tells us that we need that, that that's who we ought to be, and instead to join with Him in His wisdom, and by doing that, enjoy a far better lifestyle. Listen to the description that He says that he wants us to join in, to turn away from that wisdom of the world and to join with his wisdom. He tells us in beginning of verse 17, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive. By the way, think about the last time you watched a news report 
on television or any of these things involved in that wisdom of the world that they were spewing forth. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, full of good fruit, impartial, sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Are not these ingredients that make up godly wisdom simply wonderful and desirable? How much more do we want these in our life? Let's consider them, each one of them for a moment. Verse 17, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. Now this word pure, the Greek word means sacred, holy, morally blameless. Did Jesus not come to this earth for this express purpose? Did not he come for this express reason to cleanse us from our sins and to make us pure and holy? Folks, it's important beyond measure that we not only be holy. He tells us be holy as he is holy. But he also says to us that we must behave in that same manner. Being in the doing. James, the book of James centers on this. Do not be just a hearer of the word, but be a doer of it. He's telling us here that we have to be doers. We have to have this behavior within our personality. And then as an added bonus, our godly behavior enables us to influence others towards holiness. And then next he tells us here that God's wisdom is peace-loving, peaceable. I have to say that any time that I accidentally and I very seldom intentionally turn on the news, but any time that I hear one line coming out from our news media, there's nothing peace-loving in it. None. But here, God's wisdom, that's the world's wisdom. God's wisdom is peace-loving, peaceable, he calls it. Giving us a quiet heart that has no strife or conflict to drive its emotions. And he says, God's wisdom is gentle. It's considerate. Giving us a quiet heart that's patient and kind. I hear no patience in our culture today. No patience at all. God's wisdom is submissive. It's humble, willing to yield. Above all the other forms of sin, pride seems to have the deepest of desires to exert itself and its ideas, its ways and its philosophies over everyone and everything around us. But here he, he tells us that the wisdom from God is submissive and it's humble, and it's willing to yield. Note also that these words are describing the very heart of Jesus. He is meek and lowly of heart, gentle and humble, the Prince of Peace. He tells us that in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28, and he asks us to do the same thing. Listen to this, Matthew eleven twenty-eight: 28. Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. And listen what he wants us to learn of him. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Jesus is gentle. He's loving and kind, willing to give whatever it takes, whatever it takes to make you and me holy. He is humble in heart, willing to be submissive even unto death on the cross. He gave up everything. He was king of all creation, and he gave it all up for us. And it says 
here that He will give you and me peace. A peace that passes all understanding. A peace that the world cannot give. And then it says that godly wisdom is full of mercy. Many of the moments of our day are filled with opportunities to judge and to condemn other people for their actions and their behavior. And it is so easy to do because we want to curse them for the ways that they are and the ways that they demonstrate to us. But godly wisdom speaks out that we have no claim. Listen, you and I have no claim on the authority to judge others, no matter how bad they are. Yes, those people can be wrong and obviously wrong, and they can deserve punishment and condemnation. But listen, that must be left for those who have that authority and position, the legal authorities and then especially God himself. You and I must not busy ourselves with judging and condemning others, but instead we should be their advocate. God calls us to be their advocate. As born-again believers, we are a royal priesthood, ever standing before the mercy seat of God, begging for forgiveness for those who commit wrongs. Are you a priest? Do you stand in the gap between those sinners in front of you and God? And do you appeal to God for mercy for them? Folks, you and I don't get to be a judge. He doesn't allow us to do that. When Jesus was on the earth, he was not the judge of the people. When the prostitute was brought to him, why didn't he condemn her? It was because he came to seek and to save those who are lost. Yes, later on, he'll be a judge, but not then. And for you and me, not now. You and I may sit with him on his throne in judgment of other people when we get there to heaven, but not for now. You and I are priests standing in the gap. We're advocates crying out for forgiveness for those who commit wrongs. Now, next here we read that godly wisdom will produce good fruit. Good fruit. Jesus said, I chose you. This is John chapter 15. I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last eternally. Folks, as our hearts are set upon Christ and His righteousness, godly wisdom will produce good fruit in us, in our conversation, in our behavior, and in our outward treatment of others. And we're told here also that godly wisdom is also without partiality. Without partiality. Godly wisdom pays no attention to a person's wealth, or to their lack of wealth, their position in life, their color, their nationality, no partiality. Last night as I was standing in line at Wendy's, there was this man standing two or three folks back in the line. He obviously had a problem. Before he got through the line, he came up to me and he was obviously drinking. And he he's, has a couple of dollars and it wasn't enough to buy his food. And so he was wondering if I could help him. And I did. But folks, let me tell you, I want to confess to you, as I walked out of there, I wasn't thinking nice things about that man. You see, I did what was necessary, but I didn't do what was necessary. I needed to be kinder and gentler and be a priest before God on his behalf. Jesus chose a tax collector, not because of that tax collector's wealth or his abilities, but so that he might make that tax collector holy. 
And he also, as I mentioned a moment ago, he chose that prostitute not to condemn her, but to save her from her sins. It says here that godly wisdom is also sincere and without hypocrisy, without pretenses. We are a culture of pretenses with the way we dress, with the way we behave. Godly wisdom does not try to present itself as something that it is not. Also here in verse 18, godly wisdom gives peace both to the peacemaker and to those that the peacemaker walks among. Isn't that a delightful thought? Instead of walking through a crowd with a condemning heart, if we bring peace, God gives us peace also. He says peacemakers who sow in righteousness produce a harvest of righteousness. Godly wisdom will bring a troubled heart under control. It will give it peace, give it comfort and rest. Now let me conclude our thoughts here today with what I know to be God's way of our gaining and using His wisdom while staying clear of the corrupt wisdom of the world. The answer is contained here in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Godly wisdom will bring humility to you and me. In Philippians 2, we're told that we are to let this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Humility, folks, is the key that unlocks the door to godly wisdom and to godly behavior. Humility says, I'm not going to judge that man that's there, obviously doing something wrong. You and I must deny our own desires for anything this world would tempt us to do. And we must be willing to choose Christ and His provision. You and I must not be found guilty of trying to serve two masters. That we're not to be someone that we are not. We are to be someone that we are. And that is, we are children of the King. Humility is the desire for nothing for ourselves, but everything for Christ and for our brethren in the faith. And a humble heart will produce a harvest of righteousness. Now, isn't that a better thing altogether? Instead of despising all of those people that were watching on the television set, this is a far better thing, godly wisdom. As we leave here today, and as we see the turmoil of the world, as it upswirls all around us, it's my prayer that I, that you, will walk in the humility and wisdom of Christ. And as we do that, we'll find peace within our own soul beyond anything we've known before. Verse 17, as we close, the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Let's pray.